and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Liu Nguyen, a college student and the co-founder of the Oberlin Policy Research Institute, an undergraduate public policy research organization based at Oberlin College. My guest today is Tom Simmons, professor at the University of South Dakota School of Law. We'll discuss his paper, Conflict of Interest, Infected Virtual Representatives and a Cure, in the South Dakota Law Review. Welcome, Professor Simmons. Thank you. So let's go over why did you write this paper and what's the main crux of your argument within it? Sure. So my particular background includes uh, 13 years in private practice before I entered academia. And so I tend to take a, a kind of a practical approach to most of my scholarship, just given um, that particular background. And this this particular piece has kind of a fancy title, but it's 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 intended to be uh, kind of a user manual, uh, a do-it-yourself kind of instruction sheet for practitioners who are dealing with um, carrying out notice in a trust proceeding. So let's go over some of the basics of trust. Can you talk about that for a minute? Sure. So I always felt that trusts were one of those things that when you're talking to clients about them, um, were kind of deceptive in that most people know what a trust is, or at least they think they know what a trust is, but they actually probably don't have a very clear picture of what a trust is. So there's this disparity between what people think they know and, and what they actually know. So the basic idea of a trust is really very straightforward. It it occurs when, for example, if I convey you $5 and say, I'd like you to use this money to take my son out for ice cream later this afternoon. That's a trust. Uh, you're holding $5. That's the trust race or the trust estate. I'm the settlor or the grantor. I'm the one who kind of had the idea of creating the trust. You're the trustee. You're the one who's now holding the money in your pocket. And my son is the beneficiary. And you'll administer those funds for his benefit as we kind of agreed between ourselves. Trusts don't typically need to be in writing. They don't need to be signed. And so that's a valid oral trust. And you have those kind of four different elements. You've got the property that's involved or the race, the settlor, the one who created the thing, the trustee, the ones who, who is responsible for the thing, and the beneficiary, the person who gets to enjoy the thing. So regarding your paper, how what is a virtual representative and how does it play into the administration of the trust? Right. So interestingly, uh, um, another scholar in the trust and estates field, uh, David English, who used to teach at the same university that I teach, um, corrected me once when I was talking about virtual representation. And he said, well, you're talking about representation. Virtual representation is kind of a subset of representation. So I like to give him credit for kind of correcting me. So I say virtual representation, and I include all different sorts of both virtual representation and representation. I insist on doing that, even though Professor English corrected me, because that's what our South Dakota statutes do. We have virtual representation statutes, and we previously had virtual representation statutes, and that's what they were called. So you've got a number of different flavors of representation within a trust proceeding. Uh, virtual representation, 
is the kind of an idea where you have one beneficiary that you can give notice to, and there's another beneficiary that for some reason you can't really give notice to them, but their interests are aligned with the beneficiary that you can locate and give notice to. And the law has developed over uh, hundreds of years to kind of recognize the practical difficulties that are involved in that type of scenario and say, as long as the interests are pretty much aligned, then one beneficiary can virtually represent another beneficiary. And notice on the beneficiary that you can locate counts and binds the beneficiary that you can't locate or you have difficulty locating, even though they haven't actually been noticed. And it's kind of a surprising thing to scholars in the due process area and so forth because notice is everything. And uh, the idea of virtual representation is that, well, Sometimes it's not actually required. We might have a real difficult time here uh, with a particular matter, and we're going to employ kind of a practical uh, approach to relieving the requirement of notice in some circumstances. So that's a virtual representation when two trust beneficiaries have their interests close enough aligned that notice on one is good for notice on the other. So what are the particular historical goals that uh – enabled the creation of vir- the virtual representation doctrine? What are the major watersheds in history that led to the current state of virtual representation? Right. So it developed uh, out of the common law. It originally had a common law uh, history and expansion, and it developed out of just those kinds of practical difficulties, um, this balancing of uh, notice and practical difficulties in sometimes giving notice uh, when uh, maybe the costs of doing so just aren't really totally justified. And some of the first cases that you see kind of uh, grappling with that uh, problem and and finding a solution to it in the doctrine of virtual representation were uh, estate proceedings where you'd have a number of different creditors. And after someone passes away, it's not uncommon for there to be a creditor or two with a claim. And it's often difficult to identify all of them because the decedent, the person who who would have knowledge of all those creditors, is deceased and, and can't give you that information. So there'd be proceedings, for example, in which there was an estate and there was a hundred creditors and they were all noticed about here's what the estate is, here's what's available to pay you, and here's what we're proposing to do and have a court rule on how much the creditors get paid. And then for another creditor to come forward and say, oh, you didn't know about me, but here I am, let's start over. And the judge would say, I don't want to start this whole thing over. We've just reached a, a resolution. And In these circumstances, I'm looking at your particular interest and so forth, and it's really no different than all of the other people who are before me and fully exerted and and, and articulated their interests and their concerns. And those are the exact same things you would have said if you were here. So I'm finding that uh, you are actually bound by the results of a hearing that you didn't have notice of because your interests are aligned very closely with all of the crowd of creditors who did. So let's talk about uh, the restatements, what they are and how they apply to trusts and uh, virtual representatives. Right. So um, you're familiar with the restatements. They they do just that. Uh, they attempt to restate uh, the law in kind of a statutory format to provide us some nice 
uh, clear black letter rules uh, with exceptions and and so forth um, that are that are found within the existing state of the law and 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 the ALI. Uh, periodically will update those to reflect changes in the law. And they're intended to be just that, to be restatements of what you would find if you read 10,000 cases on a topic and you could distill a few rules from them. So in the virtual representation and the representation context with regards to trusts, the restatement of property first recognized and sort of sort of uh, codified in the restatement format uh, rules regarding uh, representation, and they related to property interests. Uh, a lot of folks remember their days from law school, um, often as a 1L uh, learning property. And when you got to Chapter 7 or Chapter 11 or whatever, whatever it was in the, in the casebook, the topic was future interests and the contingent remainders and, and, and the reversionary interests and the springing executory interests and all those kind of uh, mind-scratching um, property interests. Well, within the property context, when you have contingent remainders uh, and so forth, a lot of times you can't quite identify with total certainty ultimately who is going to have uh, the future interest in property. You have to kind of wait and see a lot of times. Uh, there may be additional people born. Uh, there may be people that die, uh, that change, who ultimately is going to receive property at some time in the future, but yet their property interest, um, they're just not currently possessory. So when we were dealing with real property and people used to really like these future interests and use them quite a bit, uh, the need developed for ways in which to notify and when you didn't have to notify those kinds of contingent remaindermen and executory uh, interests and so forth. And the restatement of property was the first restatement to start to recognize how those rules would work. Uh, they were identified in a real property context, not in a trust context primarily. And can you talk about the uniform trust code and how that relates to uh, virtual representation? Right. So I get to do another shout out to Professor David English. He's the uh, reporter for the Uniform Trust Code. Um, that was uh, an attempt uh, and a very successful attempt to uh, propose a uniform act for various states uh, to consider adopting. Uh, and it was adopted uh, or initially approved by uh, the commissioners on uniform state laws in the year 2000. And Prior to that, most jurisdictions had primarily a common law basis for their rules on trust. They would have a handful of statutes or maybe hardly not any at all, and all of the rules had to be kind of distilled from something like a restatement or from simply reading um, all the decisions in that particular jurisdiction. So the Uniform Trust Act uh, was uh, based upon the idea that, well, maybe we could codify the rules on trust and maybe states would really uh, like something like that. And I think it was actually even more successful than it was initially uh, thought that it might be. And it's been adopted uh, in a number of jurisdictions all over the United States uh, and has provided for what it seeks to do in the uniform law context, a much more uniform uh, and predictable set of laws uh, governing trusts because of its widespread adoption. Even in jurisdictions which have not adopted the Uniform Trust Code, um, its kind of restatement type 
authority, well, we can look to it and see what the general rule is typically in this regard with, with a particular trust question. It's, it's uh, impact in that regards uh, has, has made it even uh, more important. So that's a, that's kind of a, a thumbnail sketch of, of a, one of the most important developments in trust law in the last 30 years is the Uniform Trust Code. And now can you talk about South Dakota law, what it looks like and what the particular provisions related to virtual representation looks like? Sure. So uh, virtual representation, as I kind of alluded to earlier, like trust law, was um, originally uh, just found within the common law. And in a state like South Dakota, where we don't we have a low population, we only have one um, appellate court. Uh, the South Dakota Supreme Court, we don't have a lot of authority in, in case law that we can rely on. And so it's even more important that we have statutes so we can see uh, exactly how something can be done or can't be done. So South Dakota has always kind of prided itself on having um, a very comprehensive um, trust code. And we adopted statutes governing representation and virtual representation um, almost 20 years ago. Uh, and base them on New York statutes, which were adopted in 1967. And so that was kind of the state of representation and virtual representation um, up until 2017. So can you talk about the 2017 and post-2017 developments? Sure. So uh, there is in South Dakota uh, something that's really uh, quite unique, and I think uh, – very beneficial and, and maybe a, a potential model for other states. We have a, um, a gubernatorial created task force that reviews our trust statutes on an ongoing basis uh, and meets several times each year to review our current statutes and what developments have occurred in other states to consider whether we should modify something or clarify something or update something. Uh, and this, this group of individuals who are all volunteers, um, we call ourselves the Trust Task Force. It has a longer official title. Um, and we're not paid by the government. We don't receive reimbursement for our meals or travel or anything like that. We're strictly volunteers. But we get together and we discuss possible um, proposals that might be considered by the legislature uh, when the legislature meets uh, each, uh, each winter. And uh, in 2016, the Governor's Trust Task Force um, considered a set of revisions to really a complete replacement of our virtual representation statutes, which uh, are quite a bit longer, and also answer a number of questions that hadn't been answered before. And this 2017 effective um, set of statutes for representation and virtual representation is what we have had since then. So what does this look like in real life in terms of trust issues uh, within South Dakota? Right. So a lot of trust matters, even very simple and straightforward ones, are going to involve notice problems. Um, and I think the most fundamental and easy to grasp uh, and, and, and popular kind of problem is just a trust that says, for example, distribute to A and then distribute to A's children at the end of A's life. And A is still living, and we're not going to know um, who A's children are until some point in the future. So if we're making a modification to the trust or the trustee has proposed 
proposing to have their accountings approved uh, or, 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 or something involving the internal affairs of the trust where we no need to notify all the beneficiaries, we're going to have difficulty. We can notify A, presumably, and if A has any children, we can notify them. And if they're minors, we can employ a different set of representation rules to see whether we can notify their guardian or their parent or, or a caregiver uh, on their behalf. But these unborn potential children in the future, they're very difficult to give notice to. It's very, very difficult. Uh, it's really impossible to serve someone who doesn't yet exist and give them notice of a proceeding. And that's the practical and, and recurring difficulty that the, uh, the representation and virtual representation statutes address and give us a way in which to provide notice to those individuals and have finality at the end of whatever issue we're dealing with without the concern that later one person will come forward and say, Judge, I didn't have notice and I'd like to reopen this matter. So can you give a few more examples on how this will play out over time? Sure. I mean, there's a number of different things that are addressed uh, by uh, our new statutes that haven't been addressed before that I think will be uh, beneficial. The, the primary problem, as I saw it, um, and is kind of alluded to in the, in the title of this particular article, uh, Conflict of Interest Infected Virtual Representations, is that the law has always said that if someone is representing someone else, if one beneficiary, let's say, is speaking for another beneficiary in a trust matter, if they have hostility towards that other beneficiary or if they have a conflict of interest, then notice on them doesn't work. It's ineffective. And that makes a lot of sense. There's something very sensible about that kind of an idea that you ought not to be bound by someone who consented to something when they were hostile towards your interests. The problem with it is that if a trustee, let's say, is conducting a particular notice in a particular matter, they don't necessarily have any way of identifying hostility or conflicts of interest between beneficiaries. And there's not a lot of guidance on what actually constitutes a conflict or hostility. So, for example, if uh, we have two tr trust beneficiaries and one is going to be noticed uh, on behalf of the other one and the trustee gives out notice to one and says, I think this is good for notice on the other one. And just earlier that day, the two, tr the two trust beneficiaries got in a, 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 a big argument about who should pay for coffee when they were down at the coffee shop and they, and they walked out on the argument. They're, they're not speaking to each other anymore. Um, is that a hostility? There's really not any good law that helps us identify whether that's a hostility or whether the hostility has to derive particularly from the trust matter. Well, okay, say those two trust beneficiaries were also arguing about some matter concerning the trust, and they're very hostile towards each other. They have opposing opinions about a particular trust matter. Those are kinds of events that the trustee might not know about or have any real practical way of learning about. And because of the rule that a conflict of interest infects the notice and, 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 and voids it, um, you could have a number of trust proceedings where you thought you had finality when in truth you don't, and that door is still open in terms of later having to relitigate it. So in terms of the South Dakota law and the law outside of South Dakota, What's the particular liability for um, 
conflict of interest infected virtual representatives. So in other jurisdictions, there's not really any um, law with regards to the conf- the, that infected representative, someone who had a conflict of interest and, and, and bound someone else. Uh, they are non-fiduciaries in every state. And so they don't have those elevated duties that an attorney or a guardian uh, or a trustee might have uh, to another party. Uh, but they don't really have any liability for acting wrongfully. So what South Dakota has done that's totally unique among jurisdictions which have codified these doctrines is to provide that a a representative has kind of a set of rules that govern their conduct. Uh, They have the right to know that they're actually acting as a representative. Uh, They have to be told that you're actually going to be binding not only yourself but another person in this matter. They have the right to withdraw and say, well, I don't want to. I, I choose to represent myself only, but if you want consent from another beneficiary, you'll have to go about getting that. I don't want to act on anyone else's behalf. Because they're acting with a certain degree of responsibility now, uh, they have a right to compensation. And if they wrongfully and dishonestly fail to disclose a conflict of interest, let's say the representative actually is very hostile towards another beneficiary and they know they're supposed to disclose this to the trustee who is carrying out the notice and they choose not to, they now have liability. And so we've expanded the potential liability of those representatives, but we've also eliminated the ability to relitigate the matter on account of the conflict of interest. We've given much greater finality to trust proceedings, and the cost that we have paid for that is slightly expanding the possible liability of a representative who acts wrongfully. And what's the potential liability for a trustee who is aware of a conflict of interest and still continues on with uh, the continuation of their uh, goals? Right. So that's a that's a great scenario, too. If you have a trustee who says, uh, I'm going to give notice to A, and that will be good for notice on B, I actually know that A and B are not getting along and that A is not going to look after B's best interest, but I want to get this thing done, and so I'm going to notify A uh, anyway. There's liability for acting in that kind of manner by a trustee as well. Uh, and that's, that's probably part of the fabric of common law, even without a statute that confirms that, but we now have statutes that confirm trustees. If you if you proceed in the face of a known conflict of interest or hostility um, knowingly, um, there can be liability for you as well. But otherwise, you have immunity. So let's step back. Why do all these developments matter? They matter particularly in a state like South Dakota because although we're a very small, very rural state with a, what we would call a big city here is 40,000 people, Um, We have developed uh, a trust industry with our kind of cutting edge uh, trust statutes um, and our repeal of the rule against perpetuities way back in uh, 1983. We have attracted a number of both national and international uh, trust companies that act as a trustee for people all over the country and all over the world. And so we're we're drafting statutes uh, both for South Dakotans who create trusts in our state, and also for people all over their planet that are bringing their trusts 
to South Dakota. And so to the extent that we can provide for a framework in which the interests of beneficiaries are protected, there is certainty and clarity with the way that trusts work. Um, we're making the environment more attractive for people that are thinking about bringing their trusts here and re reduce the cost of litigated or contested trust issues because there's an answer to a particular question in the statutes. And as a final question, what should lawyers, practitioners, and other states take away from South Dakota's legislation in general and your paper in specific? I think in particular, again, just right back to the practicalities of it, it's important to think ahead when you have a trust matter um, and think about those those terrible things called future interests that we thought we'd avoid once we graduated from law school and think about the possibility of who is ultimately going to be the beneficiary of this trust. Do we know that? Is it possible that a 75-year-old person might adopt somebody? It's unlikely. It's possible. Um, and think about those people who you can't easily identify. The other thing that I think that I would hope my scholarship and, and the paper uh, gets people thinking about is in other jurisdictions, is there anything within our South Dakota virtual representation statutes that are worth taking a look at in terms of providing clarity uh, when different things occur with regards to virtual representation? Right. Well, thank you very much, Professor Simmons, for coming on the podcast and taking your time to talk about your very interesting paper. It was a pleasure to talk to you, Luce. Thank you. Goodbye, George. George, goodbye, goodbye. You gotta go to bed. Goodbye, goodbye. 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 Here come yeah, number forty-five in Argentina.